0: refugees are not swarming anywhere. If you look at the numbers, compared to the populations of the countries that they're coming into, it's really a very small trickle. Also, most of the world's refugees go to neighboring countries. You know, most of the world's displaced are internally displaced, right? I mean, that's really important to remember.
1: Today's guest is Dina Nayari. She is the author of The Ungrateful Refugee, Dina's first nonfiction book. Her essay of the same name was one of the most widely shared 2017 long reads in The Guardian. Dina is a former refugee who fled Iran with her family in the 80s. The book is a part memoir and also chronicles the lives of other refugees. Dina holds a BA from Princeton, an MBA from Harvard, and an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Wow. This is Immigrantly, and I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome to the show, Dina. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for uh, joining us from Paris. You are in Paris right now, right? Yes.
0: Yes, I'm in Paris.
1: So let's start with your refugee story. Why did your family decide to leave Iran? Can you talk a little bit about your exodus from Iran?
0: Sure. I mean, it was rather hurried and it was really, there wasn't really much of a choice to it. At the time, you know, we left in 1988. And, you know, at the time, there was a war going on. I was actually born around the time of the the Iranian Revolution in 1979. And then, um, you know, I, I was part of a family of doctors and, you know, kind of generally... I guess, involved people, you know, like, and they, they were, they're not terribly politically active, but my mother was always very watchful of what was going on. And and at some point she just decided to convert to Christianity. And when she did that, she started to get into a lot of trouble because again, she was someone who would, you know, speak out about what she believed in, tell other people about it. You know, she was involved in a lot of conversation, especially with other women. So, you know, she, Started to proselytize, which was incredibly dangerous and ill-advised and illegal, you know, because she could have very much, I suppose, kept it to herself. But she didn't, and I think that was very brave of her. She got into trouble. She was arrested a few times. And then at some point, it became quite dire. They started to threaten her life and ask her to become a spy against the underground church. And that's when we escaped. It was like the third time she had been arrested and they had started to kind of set dates for things like, you know, when she would be given her final choice and when she would die, you know? And so my father arranged for us to be smuggled out on a cargo plane out of Iran. And this was actually like during a bomb raid, (laughs) you know, Iraq had just, you know, it was doing kind of like Saddam Hussein was doing that thing that he called the war of the cities where he was bombing Isfahan and Tehran and all the big cities. So bomb raid was happening. You know, people were confused. Police got scattered. My mother was under house arrest. And then, um, you know, my father found a window of time to get us out. So we went and hid out in Tehran and then we left the country on a tourist visa to the United Arab Emirates and then very quickly blew through that tourist visa and became undocumented. And then we were just waiting to be recognized as refugees. And soon we were and we were put into camp outside of Rome. So then this whole process of being out of Iran, but not yet admitted to the United States. That was about 16 months. And then, then, you know, we were granted asylum. When we were living in that camp outside of Rome, Uh, we were granted asylum to the U.S. and flown to Oklahoma, where we would live and grow up. So, Dina, I want to go back
1: to your mom's conversion to Christianity. And you've discussed this in previous interviews as well. And you mentioned in one of your previous interviews that her conversion was um, sort of a rebellious move. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, I think so. And, and I don't say that in a negative way at all. You know, we each have our own moments of rebellion where we say to the world that has been created around us, well, this is not what I choose. and 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 it's not necessarily some kind of rejection of everything you've been given but it's a moment of deciding that you yourself will be in charge of your thoughts of the way that you live and of course that's easier to do and it's a smaller thing to do in you know a free country but in iran i mean it was a really big deal i think i think for her yes she believed everything um, that she i guess accepted as part of christianity and all of that but it was also about saying i'm not going to be pushed under a scarf and told that I have to believe this and this and this just because the country is of that religion. I I will choose for myself. And I think there were parts of her that really just longed for I guess she, she hates the word feminism because she's of that generation, you know, but really that's what she was yearning for, you know, like she had feminist sensibilities. She wanted women to be treated equally. She wanted to have rights. She wanted to choose her religion. You know, she wanted to have her property be hers, to have equal rights as men in courts and all the things that weren't allowed to her in the name of Islam. So I guess it was very much about all of those things and not just a specific belief in Jesus Christ. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, something that I thought a lot about
1: while I was prepping for this interview is politicization of religion and how it can be used as a method of controlling the citizenry. Because as I was reading your story, I would admit i struggled with the implication in um your book that islam was somehow inherently constrictive religion because i am a muslim and i am a feminist and i am progressive and i've never had that kind of relationship with my religion where i felt that it was constricting me in some ways but then what i realized was that as i was reading more of your story i started to see the specific context of your life and your mom's life and how that that context basically uh, formed your story and how the Iranian government had politicized religion to the point where they were trying to create a national identity
0: and create a body of control yeah you know i think i think religions are all always what we make them isn't it i mean so there is a progressive and a feminist Islam, of which you are a part. But I saw nothing of that in my life when I was growing up in the Islamic Republic. And in the book, I'm very, very specific that what I'm talking about is the Islamic Republic, right? So that that itself is not like, it, it, there, it's not essential Islam. You know, it's, what the, the, it's the Islam that is created, you know, by those group of men in that position of power that they are desperate to keep you know and you, as you said and as you said you, they are very much driven by that power and about controlling the people and 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 that's their ma- main aim you know and a part of that was very much about controlling the women and putting them in a particular place so for me like and I, I even talk in the book a lot about how I did learn later that you know the, the the who is in the right in all of this very much changes hands depending on who the government is you know what I mean and so you see like I, the most anti one of the most anti-feminist governments that you just watch right now is is the one in America. You know, <laughs> uh, it's funny because my mother associated Christianity, my my mother associated Christianity, um, with rebellion, and for her, you know, it's all the, the 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 longing for feminism or whatever was fulfilled in that because it was the other religion, because it was the underground religion, because it was the one that was pushed aside by the majority. And I think that's really what it's about. It's not Islam or Christianity. It's who's in charge and who wants to keep power. And I see, you can see like in America, for example, you know, all the trouble that women are having, is of course, with Christianity, right? Um, it's because they're in power. So Dina, before we move to
1: your life in Oklahoma, I want to talk a little bit about your stay in Italy and Hotel Berba, right? In your memoir you talk about how you learned to listen there, because there was no shortage of time. How has that shaped your personality over the years? Because you were a kid and you would just sit there and listen to others and other stories. How has that evolved your personality?
0: It taught me one of the first things, which is that, that stories exist in my own mind and they're created and shaped by me. You know, And I think that's an important lesson to teach. I'm trying to teach it to my three and a half year old. I think it's too, she's too young for that because she thinks like she'll read books. And she'll think that the story is there. So sometimes when I try to put away the book and say, let's tell a story the way I used to do when I was a kid, she doesn't get it. She, she's like, no, the story is in the book. But now recently, actually, she said it was very cute. She said, let's read the book in your head. <laughs> so I said, yes, yes, read the book in your head. And, and I think that's the thing that I learned in Hotel Barba, you know, kind of much more actively than I had as a child, even though oral storytelling in Iran is such a, was such a big part of my, you know, learning about stories but in in um in Barba I was watching people make dramas and I was watching people itching with boredom and trying to like find something that's happening and piece it together into a narrative and how desperately they wanted to do that especially with that you know love triangle that I described in the book like people wanted the beginning middle and end and they were willing to even make up or, or like speculate about it in order for that need to be realized and I had that need too you know I would sit there and I would tell the story to myself and watch and dig out more details and it was very much like trying to piece together a storybook you know but I think the realization hit the instinct came that I'm in charge of the structure of this thing you know that I can make a story out of what I see you know and it triggered a part of the imagination that does you know create other endings and you know does watch something happen and then daydream about it for a very long time trying to like imagine different scenarios and I think that just the the seeds it's the beginning of a storyteller I suppose. Absolutely and then you come
1: to Oklahoma you felt that now that you were Christians you come to the U.S. and the expectation somehow was that obviously people would accept you with open arms and then you come here and reality was different. Can you talk a little bit about what was reality on the ground when you came to Oklahoma to resettle?
0: Well you know I, I think I did expect very much to be judged by the things I had been judged by in Iran. So in Iran, you know, like it's interesting popularity in school was all about your grades and who your parents were and whether or not they were like academic types or scholarly types, you know, and, and, you know, that kind of stuff, it was such, such an academic culture, Iran, you know, so from an early age, I learned that, you know, if we worked hard and were really smart, then that's the respect that we would get. And, and I really very much expected that to come back in America. So it, I expected that, you know, there would be a, you know, period of adjustment when my mother would find her profession again as a doctor and I would find, you know, my place in school and we'd be treated normally. But like, I absolutely did not expect the notion of being from Iran or being from far away or having an accent or any of that stuff to make me so absolutely hateable. And I think that came as quite a shock because, you know, even the the children, there was a few days where they were curious and accepting, I suppose. And then I guess that's the time it took for their parents to tell them about Iran. And then then they came back and started in with all of the horrible name calling and, and, you know, um, things that I'm sure you've heard also. It was a shock for me. I was used to being a very cheery, happy kid, curious kid, you know, full of life and wanting the world to, I guess, see me and then suddenly i think i became someone who felt the need to hide out because you know the the lens through which i was seen was very very ugly and i think it's also something As a girl to come across that right as you're about to enter puberty, you know, because there's just a hundred ways that the world tells you, then you are not good enough. There's an entire category of girls and women that are better than you. And sorry that you didn't know that they exist, but they did. And here they are, you know, and they're just going to abuse you for the rest of your, your adolescence. And so I became very, very ashamed of Iran. I hadn't even thought about like what Iran might be before. Iran was the world, you know, like Iran was just the name of our country. It was amazing. Everything about it was sensual and joyful and, you know, like delightful family and the food and, you know, all the, the things that I had grown up with. But now it was place of war and um, violence. And nobody really had room for more. And and, and to be, I guess, associated with that at a young age, it makes you really feel differently about yourself.
1: But it did change your personality, right? From wanting to go to Harvard to your writing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your like obsession with Harvard? And you did end up going there, uh,
0: but it was a journey, right? It was. It was, you know, it, it was funny when I was a kid you know, I was also very academic, very driven, but I don't know how to describe it, but it was an ordinary part of me that wasn't always itching. It wasn't always so urgent. You know what I mean? Like it was just a given that I would do well academically, do my best in my life. You know, it wasn't about proving something, but I think in America, I became about proving something. To become American was really the only goal, you know, because I felt so on display as an Iranian. And, you know, we were also so poor. So there were so many negative lights cast on us. And so the goal wasn't just to become an American. The goal was to become the best kind of American, a kind of American that would get respect. Because also just being poor, I noticed around me that there was a category of Americans around me who also weren't respected. And that was, you know, the disenfranchised people that lived in the same apartment complex that we lived in so you know I, I wasn't striving to be necessarily them I wanted to be the kind of American the people at school and the, the people in our community would respect and and you know movies was my entry point into that I I would watch movies and I'd be like oh look at these respectable people in New York or <laughs> doctors and lawyers and all of these kind of big confident men who all had seemed to according to the movie have gone to Harvard <laughs> So I, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go there. So I, I had actually found this book on college admissions in the local library in the young adult section. It was just laying open on a chair. And I went and I, I looked through it. And then I saw that there were like school rankings, university rankings. And there was a page on how to get into each one and you know what they wanted. And, and at the top of the list was Harvard. And there was all of this information on how to write the essay and how to choose your talents. (laughs) And and it became very clear that academics was not enough the way it was in Iran. I couldn't just, like, be really good at math (laughs) and get into Harvard. You know, I had to. And and it was shocking also to me that one of the ways you could actually distinguish yourself was through sports. And if and it specifically said, if you won a national championship in something, it would really make you stand out. And at the time I was such a naive kid, I said to myself, well, oh, okay, then I'm just going to win a national championship <laughs> in something. And I just how little respect, by the way, I had for the whole physical arena because I thought, whatever, because I'm a brainy kid. That's the hard stuff. Oh, you want me to win a national championship in a sport? No problem. <laughs> Like, physical stuff. It's just the body. Like, I literally at that young age thought, well, you know, the body is capable of things. And, and you know, there's a set of number of hours you can do and make your body do things. Everybody's body is the same. You know, it was very, very primitive understanding of, of, um, you know, biology and and, uh, human capability. But I think it was good to be that naive because then I got myself um, into taekwondo. I, I, I chose the sport based on how very likely it would be that I could win a national championship. So, you know, I actually at first started with tennis and swimming a sports my mother had done. I realized in this Oklahoma suburb, there were a lot of very wealthy girls who got coaches for that stuff. And it was really hard to compete against them. So I went and found a sport where there are not that many girls competing and they handed out trophies by weight and age and belt and all that. And that was Taekwondo. So, you know, I started to practice that. Weirdly enough, I fell in love with it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I got really deep into Korean culture, which was another aspect of this that was bizarre. You know, in this moment where I'm trying to assimilate and become American, I was actually just learning and absorbing, you know, all of this, like, Korean words and Korean food and Korean cultural tidbits. And, um, yeah, so I just really spent my high school years really making myself suffer academically in terms of sports and all of that stuff. And, and, I did win a national championship, <laughs> but then you went. You didn't go
1: to Harvard then for your bachelor's. You ended up in Princeton. I mean, you can't complain, right? And then <laughs> no, I was
0: not complaining. The funny thing, the funny thing about it is actually, you know, it's it's kind of a crapshoot. I actually didn't get into Harvard. I got into Princeton, but lucky for me that year, U.S. News and World Report ranked Princeton number one. So I was like, phew. <laughs> 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 but then you go to Harvard for MBA. Um, did you work? after doing your MBA? No, I did before. So out of Princeton, you know, you you can't just go at the time anyway. They didn't really accept anyone at Harvard Business School straight out of undergraduate. You had to have like like three years of work experience. And so I went and worked at a company called McKinsey.
1: My husband is a management consultant. I know about these (laughs) companies really well.
0: (laughs) Where does he work? Oh, it's A.T. Carney. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I know it. So he knows about McKinsey and their general culture—it's exactly the type of cur- girl that I was, which was insecure and completely overachieving. <laughs> I'm just overachieving, like just so I—I I went there. It was the next hard thing to get into, and so I was very proud of myself. And then from there, I think they just kind of herded a lot of people into Harvard Business School. So I followed the the tide, one might say, you know. But of course, it's I. I I don't believe now, like I was not built for business. It doesn't give me joy. I think I could do well in the business world if I wanted to start my own company. I don't think I'd be a happy person.
1: But Dina, the interesting thing is you make it sound like everything was easy. I mean, you probably are one of the smartest people that I know, because if I look at what you've done, it, it's pretty crazy. I have kids who I hope they can get into these great schools one day and all. And it's so much
0: work. And you just make it sound like, you know, it was easy. Well, you know, thank you. But the thing is, I think it's easy if you're willing to live like I do. And I don't think you, you want your children to live the way I do. Like my nights are filled with terror and dread and insecurity. The ins- I think the inside of my head is is a, is a, is a very dark place because I can't rest you know, and I and I, I still feel this need, this constant need to to do something with my life. And and there's the, the um, idea, you know, my own mortality, the notion that I will one day die is ever present. And so I, I think I, I I literally have, you know, made myself into someone who is incapable of really resting. I mean, there's moments where I have I, I force myself to rest and I can feel myself becoming more and more and more tense. And I think so. If you become, I guess, addicted to to the idea that you know you your body your your brain are all machines toward the service of something and if you lose the sight of whatever it is that you're working to the toward the service of you become useless and this useless feeling takes over it's an exhausting existence you know and I think it's a it's a way that I trained myself to be from such an early age you know and and so I, I mean I think if you if you work as ridiculously hard as I do at everything you know to the detriment of my own health then then yeah, I think actually, then I in that case I haven't achieved very much at all. Because, um, but I wouldn't want my daughter to be that way. I want my daughter to be, to be joyful, you know, the way I was as a child, and to, to really accept and, and internalize her place in the world, and to make a difference, yes, but to live a balanced life. You know, but I think what what you're describing it is true
1: for many refugees and immigrants. This notion of trying to prove something to the world. Once you leave your motherland, you feel the need to prove to everybody that you deserve to be in a country that you call home now. Um, It's true among all immigrants. It's true even if I see my husband and myself, we are always trying to prove to others that we are worthy of uh, being here, which Honestly, I think it also ties back to, A, your book, which is an amazing book, The Ungrateful Refugee. Um, and it also ties back to this whole notion of, um, you know, this old banner of colonialism where we are made to feel that uh, somehow people of color are rescued by white people and somehow we feel the need to prove ourselves as coming from different cultures, different
0: ethnic background. Um, that we deserve all of this, which is so unfair. You know, I realize as time goes by that it's not just about immigration, because it's not just about who has landed where you know when people of color land in you know largely i guess white countries we're always doing this these things that we describe wanting to be worthy wanting to be grateful all that stuff but actually it works the other way too you know like in places that used to be like colonized where you know the majority are people of color they also posture this gratitude toward the white you know incomers i was actually interviewing one of the authors and um her family uh, is originally from philippines and she said the same thing as if they did a favor to come to the you know to coming in to these countries yeah absolutely
1: because when people like my white friends when they talk about oh is Pakistan safe and I'm like you know what when you go there you will be treated like royalty so <laughs> it's pretty safe for you guys it may be less safe for others but it is pretty safe for you if you go there you will be given red carpet treatment no doubt about that
0: yeah exactly I don't know what it is I I don't know like well I mean it's for each place, it's just the long history of the white people themselves asserting themselves as better, you know, and, and, and taking advantage of the of people of color. And then, of course, we internalize that because that's how human nature and human psychology works, you know. So I think it's going to take several generations to, to shed this, you know. Talking about your book,
1: Dina, The Ungrateful Refugee, it's a part memoir. And then you also chronicle lives of other
0: refugees. Was there a particular story that stood out to you? You know um the I talked to so many more people than are in the book so the ones that I chose every single one of them stood out to me but of course there is the story of the couple that I renamed Tara and and Valid. that that was heartbreaking and very difficult to write and in fact very difficult to gather I mean every stage of putting this story in my book was hard. <laughs> I was harder than the others. You know, the first was because I met them in a refugee camp and this, um, and you know, this was a couple who had lost their first two children. They had married out of love in Afghanistan. So this is itself, you know, kind of a, a rare and wonderful story that they had met and fallen in love, even though they were a working class family. And they had had two children very young. And they both had this kind of sweet faces of people who, who love a lot, you know? I, I don't know how to describe that, but like, you know, there's a kindness that creeps into the lines of your face when you have spent a lot of your life loving other people and not thinking about yourself. And these two, this husband and wife, both had that. And, and they um, uh, they had gone through this horrific accident, which I describe in the book, and uh, because the husband was being targeted by the Taliban. And and he, um, you know, they had uh, the brakes in their cars messed with on a very, very dangerous road, which is very famous, you know, for avalanche deaths and and deaths, you know, by falling off a mountain and all that stuff in, in Afghanistan. And this road is very icy, very badly maintained and people die. So they had messed with their brakes and they had a, a horrific car accident, which I described in the book. And it's, um, and they lost their two children and several other members of their family and they had to start over they had to begin again you know they had more children and then the the Taliban came back they had to escape so i think they had spent by the time i met them you know something like a decade running and actually more 15 years running and they, they they the next child that they had had was now a teenager um, actually no i'm sorry the, that that child was a baby during the car accident and he had survived but he was now a teenager and they had two other children who were now eight and nine and they were all in this refugee camp together and they had been on the run for most of their lives in one way or another and there were so many aspects of this first of all I had to get the story out of them they were speaking you know in the Afghan way of speaking Farsi you know so I had to sit there and the strain and listen and ask them to describe these horrible moments again and again and again so I could get it right and and then at the end of the conversation, they actually asked me to take their child with me back to England. And I think they were so desperate. I think deep down they knew that the impossibility of that, just even if I thought that that was a good idea, how impossible it would be logistically uh, to actually accomplish that. But they were so desperate. And here was this Western woman with like a, a passport, you know, uh, and it, it, they were just willing to give me their child. I mean, everything about that was excruciating. And I remember going back to the car uh, after I had sat with them for many hours and um, I, I talked into a tape recorder for like an hour, just making sure I had every detail of, you know, what had happened in that room. And then months later, when I sat down to write it, you know, and I listened to all of the recordings that I had, it was hard, you know, emotionally hard to get that down and to actually give it shape and to research all of the surrounding context and, Bring the story to life. I mean, some stories you honestly like you don't want to bring to life. You just know that you need to.
1: so why do you think, Dina, given the kind of national discourse that we have right now in the u s specifically around immigration and refugees, what are people not understanding? And to your point, there are times when even when refugees are allowed or immigrant refugees, in fact, are allowed to come into this country, it's more like their resilience and their courage is eclipsed by the whole notion of how they are saved. So the focus becomes on who has saved them rather than their own journey and their own resilience in the process.
0: Why do you think people are
1: not getting
0: this? You know, I think what you're pointing to is this Epidemic of, the, of people taking other people's stories and always making it about themselves. And Americans and Westerners, comfortable, native-born people who've never been displaced, are so good at doing that. Basically, like it's like the the, the rescue of those people and the, the lives being saved becomes about them. They accomplish in their lives becomes about you know what immigrants add to our economies. The the like political questions of you know surrounding the refugee crisis and migration becomes about well which of our resources will they take and how much. will they cost and and you know like what about all of the displaced i don't know what about all of the i don't know workers who live in texas or arizona like these ridiculous questions that just reveal that the central concern for these people is just themselves and the four people they love it's really truly the most entitled self-absorbed culture i have ever seen and they reframe these large global questions these tragedies to be about them. Even when you have stories that are so impossible to look away from, they somehow manage to make it about themselves. And this is really the most stunning thing for me. And I think that, you know, the current administration and a lot of, I guess, right-wing politicians have become very good at enabling that or making that possible by taking these individual stories and aggregating them up into one big scary fog. So they just give all of these You know numbers without context, and make people think that refugees are swarming into their country when they're not. You know they use words like swarm, or you know like you know these words that you know connote plagues. You know they they use all of these in order to to put fear, uh, irrational fear, in people's minds. So I think you know you ask what would I want people to know? What are some of the things that are you know just misconceptions? The first is this refugees are not swarming anywhere. If you look at the numbers, compared to the populations of the countries that they're coming into, it's really a very small trickle. Also, most of the world's refugees go to neighboring countries. You know, most of the world's displaced are internally displaced. Right? I mean, that's really important to remember. There's, um, I think, like 70 million and totally displaced people, forcibly displaced people in the world. Most of them are internally displaced. Then there's like 25 million refugees, and most of them go to na- neighboring countries. You know, I think so. You know, and you, when you look at those numbers, I think Trump just reduced the refugee cap to something like 18,000. That is so much less than what we owe to the world, considering how much of the resources of the world we have consumed and how much of like these wars we have caused with our you know foreign but, policy. But so, the unfortunate thing is nobody looks at those numbers.
1: Nobody talks about those numbers. It's mm, easy. No, with any care. E- exactly. It's very easy to say things that are just absolutely incorrect. And believe you me, it's not just... Americans who, native-born Americans who think like that, I've had these conversations with my own friends, my immigrant friends, who have the same notion of, oh, the U.S. cannot let everybody come in. Now, again, that, that notion is so misplaced. U.S. is not letting everybody come in.
0: And isn't it clever of them, of the, you know, I guess, gatekeepers that they turn immigrants against each other through this whole notion of exceptionalism? Because, you know, American exceptionalism has created so much harm. It actually created the harm inside my own mind, making me think that, you know what, I could myself accomplish all of this stuff and prove myself to be one of these exceptional Americans. Right. And, And I think by making immigrants think, oh, if you're in. You know, then by making the people who kind of came in and got settled, making them believe, oh, but you're one of the ones that we love. You're one of the ones that's exceptional. You had a true good story, but all those others are fucking liars, right? (laughs) Like... Right. And I, mean, it's, I I'm sorry, but Absolutely. absolutely. It's it, it's easy for them to believe that because it makes them feel prideful again after having lost, you know, so much of their identity. It makes them feel, oh look, I did it. I impressed the white man and, and it swells them and it makes them feel good. And if they're not deep thinking people, of course every culture has their you know, shallow thinking masses. Well, you know, if they're not very deep thinking people, they'll be like, Okay, I did it. It was me. So all these other people must be liars. It
1: is not about legal versus illegal Economic migrant versus a refugee—it's much deeper than yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I hope people understand, and they do their own research, which is extremely important. We don't have to listen to whatever the media says or the administration says, for that matter.
0: Yeah, you're right. You know, absolutely. And I think another thing is, I think people need to give some serious thought to what is legal and illegal. It is not illegal to seek asylum to enter a country with the desire to seek asylum. You know, to present yourself—it's not illegal. Like, stop saying illegal. One misconception we have is that we believe the gatekeepers and that the people who are in charge of the entire immigration process are, you know, well-meaning and neutral and smart. They're not. They're uh, not. No. And and we we think that they're well-educated in their job. They're not. They're, you know, they don't understand um, about, you know, cultural issues around storytelling. They don't understand about trauma. They have the most basic knowledge of what happens after, say, torture, you know, or rape. Or they don't understand anything about the cultures where, you know, people come from. So, for example, a rape survivor enters a country and doesn't disclose the rape right away because they are ashamed, because it's going to take a really long time for them to admit to themselves that it wasn't their fault. They, so they come in and they tell some other parts of their story. They don't mention the rape. And then six months later, when they're okay with themselves and feeling a little bit safer, and they've talked to trauma counselors and lawyers, then you know they can admit what happened right well then you know what the gatekeepers don't believe them they say you made it up exactly you know? and there, and there's there's a lot more around that around who the gatekeepers are, who the asylum officers are, and how they're incentivized. There is a culture of disbelief in the asylum offices across Europe and in the U.S. And it the, the people in those offices assume everyone coming in is a liar and an opportunist, and their only job is to seek inconsistencies, tiny little inconsistencies in their story, so that they can reject the whole thing. In England, they have actually like rejected torture survivors whose bodies are covered in scars based on tiny little what they call credibility issues. I was working on
1: an asylum case uh, with two lawyers and, and this person, he had come from Pakistan. Um, he was um, obviously persecuted by Taliban. And he was in the U.S. for at least six months. He was detained. He was at a detention center. And we would go and we would question him. He would be like he was asked to explain his story or to narrate his story at least 50 times. And it's, again, the same thing, inconsistencies. And there was this minute detail that he did not mention in the beginning. And he was deported. He was deported based on that minute detail. And I obviously I can't disclose a lot about the case itself, but it was so disappointing. And as you said, it's all about finding those inconsistencies. So people who think the process is easy, it's not. People who have already been persecuted, who've already been tortured, have to go through. They have to somehow make their story more compelling for it to be acceptable.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think what is compelling also depends so much on your specific audience, which you have no way of knowing, you know, like there's the cultural aspects of what, you know, impresses, let's say an American versus Dutch or French. But then there's also the the question of like, who, they have the saying in, in US immigration, like your judge is your fate, you know, like, who is your judge? What do they want? You, you, the, uh, first of all, you have no shot without a lawyer, but so often lawyers will like tailor the stories, depending on who the judge is. I mean, how could that even be the way that we do things? It's completely inconsistent. And I think that, Many of the people who are running, who are coming as refugees, who've been, you know, suffering for years and years in the, the camps and just waiting—they—they they don't have the context to understand, you know, like how to make themselves seem human and compelling to that individual asylum officer who is sitting there coldly staring. Like they don't have you know, and they don't have the understanding of asylum law. Anyway, now we're getting into the all of the brokennesses of the system, but it's broken <laughs> in many places. So, Dina,
1: again, going back to your book, it's a wonderful book. I am reading it and I just love every bit of it. Now, where can people find it?
0: Well, they can find it at all of their independent... It's an Indie Next pick, so your independent bookstores, uh, local independent bookstores, as well as all of the, you know, major booksellers and... Outlets. So, and, and it's also um, on Audible. I read it, I, I read the audiobook myself, and yeah, and downloadable also.
1: Now, before we wrap up, I always ask my guests this question If you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you describe it? When you hear the word America, what
0: comes to your mind? What is that you associate with? I guess I re- associate it with two things. I associate it first with a feeling of safety because that was my first experience of America. It was it was very much like you know a security blanket. This was a place I my mother would no longer be killed. But now I think of it as you know kind of torn to shreds that that security blanket. I mean to to mix my metaphors, I feel like you know America used to be a big hearted place, you know, America used to be a place that really understood its duty to the world. And when we arrived, there was a feeling that, you know, even whoever was, was accepting us, whether or not they really wanted us there, it was part of their American duty to the displaced of the world to take us in, you know? And so in that way, it was a security. Now I feel like that that sense of duty has turned to entitlement and people have become hostile and so yeah that security blanket that i had has been torn to shreds and there there is no more welcome or that welcome is very quickly wearing away but i think america in like at its deepest core is kind-hearted because the the notion of America is a kind-hearted thing, you know? So, and, and the American values and dreams are fundamentally, or at least they were, they were meant to be, you know, kind-hearted. And they were, I guess, misused and abused in a, in a hundred ways all throughout its history. I do think there are, you know, kind-hearted people in America who are still there, still waiting, still want to do something good. And so my hope is that they will, I suppose, mend it. Thank you so much, Dina. Thank you for this great conversation. No problem. And and I apologize for the street noise. But hey, you know, it's kind of exciting coming to you from the streets of Paris. Yeah, (laughs)
1: absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you to all for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it on social media. Write a good review and subscribe. Also, a quick reminder that we have... GoFundMe set up. Please donate as much as you can. Your donation helps us keep the lights on here. Every dollar counts. You can get the link on our website at immigrantlypod.com. Until next time, when we bring another amazing story, take care.